Everybody, welcome back to the Beyond the Peloton podcast. I'm Spencer Martin from the Beyond the Peloton newsletter. As always, I'm here with Andrew Vance from the Choose the Hard Way podcast. We have a little bit of a grab bag episode this week talking cycling journalism, the, the imminent Saudi takeover of the sport might have already happened by the time we finish this show. And Andrew is going to walk us through the uh, what, what everyone wants to know about the local results of Colorado cyclocross racing. Andrew, do you want to say a quick word about your podcast before we get going? With that teaser, I know everyone wants us to jump right into <laughs> Cyclo X number four out at Valmont 1028-2023. We salute all those who are out there in the flurries. Before we get into that, though, yeah, Choose the Hard Way is the podcast about how doing hard things build stronger humans who have more fun, as Spencer and I experienced at Belgian Waffle Ride, Kansas Thin Mint Edition. You can go listen to our previous podcast about that if you want to experience the real-life manifestation of living that philosophy. Next episode I'm dropping, I think, will be quite quite interesting to our listeners here. I have Drew Dillman and Dylan Johnson from the Bonk Bros back on the podcast in their first dual appearance talking about the big 2023 gravel rivalry kind of wrapping up the lifetime grand prix overview for the year talking big sugar in a big way we're talking things like hey can gravel tires actually provide traction on gravel surfaces when turning indeterminate come check us out find choose the hard way everywhere you listen and at choose the hardway.com and you can find us on social at hardway pod love hearing from you all reach out and say hello so to give everyone a little bit of a background, you know, we're, we're out there living our normal lives, doing BWR, um, doing hard things, so watching what we can from the big sugar gravel race won by a man who I don't know how to say his name, but I know he's very good at cycling and is from Norway. But he won both BWR Kansas and big sugar, which means he must be very good yeah. at riding bikes and found his, found his niche here. But so we're out there living our lives. Report comes out in Reuters, uh, this must have been about a week ago at this point, that Richard Pluge, straight from the Beyond the Peloton podcast studios, is now trying to organize a cabal, shall we call it, of six teams that would attempt to purchase, well, the, from what I can parse through this Reuters report is, it's six teams joining together, maybe raising money to go around and buy TV rights up front from bike races that currently exist and they would brand this you know it's like this is what formula one does formula one doesn't own their races they just it's just a, a random thing called formula one grand prix so to be in the grand prix you have to be affiliated with formula one they then go out and sell all the sponsorships and tv slots themselves if you're a race you i guess you get a piece of that pie all the teams get a piece of that pie Everyone's happy. They make tons of money. Pluga mentioned this, like kind of uh, offhanded on the on his appearance on Beyond the Peloton. He mentioned the uh, grow, grow the get the pizza bigger. You know, ASO won't give you something for nothing, but if you bring them something of value, maybe they would share revenues with you. I guess in retrospect, this is what he was talking about. Unclear to me if this could actually work. We could talk about the merits of this, but Pluga then he has like a manifesto, I guess, like a book he's published in Dutch. We should try to track it down and translate it. But he does outline that he thinks there should only be a hundred race days in this new professional cycling calendar he would put together. No races overlap. Every race starts and ends on a Sunday. Pr pretty reasonable. Probably should happen. Um, 
<laughs> this is surprising to me that people are pushing back on that. Like, there's no way Terreno Adriatico and Perry Nice should ever be running concurrently and competing against each other. So th- this report comes out. Someone inside this group gave information to Reuters. I think one or two days go by. Another report comes out in The Guardian, uh, Jeremy Whittle, Jeremy Whittle's story that PIF, the Saudi Arabia, Saudi Arabia, I guess, sovereign wealth investment fund is cited by sources as a possible investor in this uh, one cycling pro league, blah, blah, blah thing. I mean, and, and people lost their minds like, oh, my God, Saudi Arabia is taking over. This is imminent. This is happening. How can we deal with this as a sport? I mean, they say as a possible investor, like PIF could be a could be an investor in my local coffee shop. Like they physically could, they probably won't be. So, do you want to like before we go into like who le- someone leaked these stories and probably someone had a reason to do it? Anytime you read a story like this, you should ask yourself, why am I finding out about this? Why was this given to the journalist to write about, and why would someone do that? But first, Andrew, do you want to talk about, you know, you're, you're a former Big J yourself. Now, you, you know all these, fan, these things. I think, I believe you attended the University of Missouri Journalism School. Is that correct? Like the best in the country? I was in the communications school there, Spencer. I was in the J school for a little while, but I, I decided to shift over to communications. But yeah, I, you know, I did some journalism for about a decade. And the, uh, you know, I don't think you need a degree in journalism or to have been a journalist to start exploring what's going on here. And I think we also should get into the history of similar courses of action or suggestions that have been made and pursued in the past, because there are historic antecedents to this moment in time when people have tried to do similar things. So this is not a particularly new idea. If it were executed and were effective, that would be something new. But if we just take a look back, there was, of course, Velon, which was an organization of teams that tried to create more or less collective bargaining power for teams and team owners in relation to the owners of the events, ASO and the uh, the organization that used to own the Giro, which is now owned RSA, which is now owned by ASO. Correct? Velon's fuzzy to me. I don't quite understand. Yeah. So how they're yeah, still I mean, that's pumping that's all. Yeah, that's the whole thing. But if you okay, they still have a live website. But this was something I believe that David Brailsford was at the forefront of that. I know that Jim uh, Akowitz and like, there are a bunch of teams that were involved, and basically their position was we own the data from the writers, which you know that was interesting because they were saying they own the data, not the writers themselves. I believe that was their position. And then they also wanted to have collective bargaining to try to get a piece of, you know, this concept of let's make a a bigger pizza instead of having smaller slices for everybody. Let's spread the money around. Let's work together to make this, the sport bigger and better that it didn't work. They also tried to spin off their own race series, which was independent of races that existed at the time. So they're kind of this was a bit of an antecedent to the NCL, but at a world <laughs> tour level. And it was called the Hammer Series. And okay, the Hammer Series still has an active website, but it has a message about the current situation in the world caused by the COVID-19 virus. So I'm not sure that 
that this is a uh, hammer series stays on hold in 2021. So they, they're still paying for their, their GoDaddy domain hosting fee, but they haven't updated the WordPress site since 2021 or whatever this is. Maybe it's a Wix site. So I'd say the hammer series at this point is dead. They, you know, they had, uh, if anyone listening is, uh, a rugby fan, the, the rugby world cup just happened. Rugby is pretty progressive when it comes to modifying rules over time to try to speed up play, to make it safer, relatively safer for players. And that's kind of what the hammer series was trying to do. They tried to have similar to the NCL, a different style of racing. It was controlled by Milan, I believe, and it didn't work. So their website hasn't been updated since 2021. So this new concept, which I think is a great one, I would love to see this happen. And this idea of the teams coming together with ASO, because realistically they own almost everything. Maybe they also would, what if the, what if this conglomerate rolled up the lifetime Grand Prix series and we integrated would be unstoppable, gravel racing? Perhaps. Yeah. I mean, it'd yeah. be unstoppable. Maybe they, they create a time machine and, uh, purchased Norba before it uh, went under. I don't, I don't think Norba exists anymore. I could be wrong. But anyway, so th this concept of let's all work together to create more economic opportunity for everyone on its face, that sounds cool. The fact that this was leaked to Reuters and I'm looking at the story right now, I, I'm not, I feel like I'm pretty familiar with the the people who cover the financial side of professional cycling and also the business press as it relates to this topic. I worked with a lot of these people when I was a communications executive at Strava. I don't know the people who specifically wrote this story. So, uh, and I'm not sure who might've leaked it to them, but I think you're right. It has to have been someone who was agitating to try to make this, uh, this deal come together, this cartel of teams or whatever the case may have been. Um, so I, I have, yeah, I have, a, I have a lot of thoughts about what's going, going on here before maybe we dive deeper into that. I do want to point out that a number that came up in, I believe the Reuters story is that they believe they need about $600 million dollars to get this thing off the ground, which that's not a small amount of capital. And Spencer, you and I were, <clears throat> we were messaging about this after this initial report dropped and before the follow-up story ran in the Guardian naming the Saudi Sovereign Wealth Fund. And uh, neither of us spends a lot of time out there on threads or on Twitter. It's It's kind of a for the most part, a giant toilet. And it's, it's not a toilet that I put things in most of the time. But, um, a thought that I had was when I saw that $600 million number, you know, people who are in, in venture capital, when they, they put $600 million into something, they want to see a multiple of that investment and they want to see it in a, a finite time horizon. Um, and they have expectations that they're going to make a multiple of their investment Cyc pro cycling at the moment. I mean, from what we've seen of the, the reports, uh, like from the Amory family, like they do, they do well, they make a, they make a profit, but it's indeterminate. If you organize the sport in this manner, how much money are you going to make 
over what time horizon. So it's not necessarily clear to me that someone would have the incentive to take a pretty massive on its face financial risk to make a $600 million investment. Uh, and then my thought was, well, if someone were to do that, it would likely be a sovereign wealth fund um, from Saudi Arabia or UAE, something similar. We've seen that they put a ton of money into sports in the last couple of years, Live Golf, of course, being perhaps the the biggest example of that. But I, I can't see the VC firms that we're all familiar with probably like taking a flyer on this. And I, I can think of some instances when they would make an investment like that, which we can talk about, but it just seemed a bit improbable to me. And then this just seemed really thinly sourced. The second story in The Guardian, I'd have to go look at it again, but I feel like a lot of reporting that's coming out related to finance and cycling currently often has to do with uh, Pluga or someone else giving an interview on a podcast and not in English. And then someone in an English speaking outlet then creates a story story about yeah, something. No, that's, that's exactly how isn't that, every English yeah. language article is written. Yes. Yeah. So yeah. anyway, that was a very long preamble to the discussion, but those are kind of the mechanics of, of what's happening and why I have some skepticism about the possibility that this might happen. Although I would love for it to happen. I or, have, I, yeah. I would as well. I think that the idea is very good. Um, I did like a, I did a show with this with Johan Bernil yesterday. He kind of thought, and I tend to agree with him. This, none of this is going to work. You'd really have to buy ASO. If you don't buy ASO, don't even try to do this. But theoretically, I could see, and I, I could see a plan where instead of buying ASO, you just give them a check for all of their right, their TV rights for all of their races up front at the beginning of the year. And then you figure out how to go sell that and make a profit. A couple things though, that jumped out at me and I do, I, I all, I've heard who the source is. I'll, I'll, we'll get into that later and why they might have uh, released this. Sorry, Spencer, but before we go into that discussion to the point that you just made, if you're ASO and you get approached by this, this, um, this organization, whatever this, this cartel of teams or whatever the case may be. And they say, Hey, we want to buy out your TV rights. Cause actually we think we can make some massive multiple of whatever you're making. If you're an ASO, why would you ever do that? I think you would do it because I don't think that they, they a, don't make very much money on, they don't, they're not aggressive in selling the TV rights. Maybe they don't want to, maybe they just don't have the expertise, the in-house expertise to do that. So they think, well, is 25 million euros today worth more than hiring out a team to sell these TV rights and figure out how to get a hundred million euros for it? Would we rather just have the money up front? You do raise a good point. Like if, if these guys can sell it for, for a lot, wouldn't you just keep that product and try to sell it yourself? You're bringing up good points about why this probably won't work. But, and, but I think and surely they've they've thought of this themselves. I have to imagine. And I mean, we've I know we've discussed this in the past, and it's been written about extensively. And then there there was that book that came out last year about the Amory family. And I mean, it just seems like this is a privately held. It's still business. It's a large business. It's highly profitable. It seems like the family is happy with the amount of money they're making. Is the impression I get, which yeah, is I think that. Right. And they just, yep. it doesn't seem that they have an incentive to let go of 
something's just that's spitting tens of millions of dollars of cash that's going back into the pockets of the family, which is the impression that I get based on what I've read. And it seems for them to have the incentive to do anything, you might need some intergenerational uh, transition of power within the organization or something like that, I think could lead to agitation that could open the door for something new and different happening or for it to actually be sold. And I also feel like in France, this, I mean, this is regarded as a, you know, it's a national institution that, yeah, I think that that's a factor as well. There's some kind of nationalistic factor. There, there is generational turnover coming. I think the matriarch is like in her late eighties, I believe mid to late eighties. So if you were aggressive about purchasing them, you would probably try to do it during that turnover. But yeah. I guess this would, I guess the thesis would be, they can really only get a lot of money if you, they have all the rights. So they would need Flanders yeah. classic, the Giro and ASO maybe just doesn't want to put up the money to buy those organizations or buy their TV rights and then bundle them all together and sell them for a multiple, they might just be happy to get a check and say, yeah, that's pretty good. That's one more thing off our list. Now we can hang out in Paris and, and wait for the tour and then job well done for the year. I mean, that, that would be the guess there. But is this really, this isn't, I, I saw two things and it made me kind of wonder if the people writing the stories knew what they were talking about, where they, I just kept seeing the words like Champions League style league we're like i don't think you know what the champions league is the champions league is run by uefa who's basically the uci of soccer like a some sort of european governing body and it's all the best teams from different leagues in europe playing each other during the season that would be like if legion was racing against yumbo in a special race that wouldn't be a new series and then also I don't know if this is a VC play. Isn't this would be more of like a private equity play where a private equity company invests in this and they're going to get a solid return over like a certain time horizon. Like, I don't think you're going to put 600 million in and get 7 billion back. That doesn't seem like that realistic. And I don't know where that, I was confused about that 600 million number. You know, to buy all the TV rights, you probably only need like 25 million. Maybe the 600, I, I, I don't know. I, I wonder if that got thrown around, if that was a, like if they wanted to buy RCS and Flanders Classic, yeah. if they would need 600 million to do that. That would seem more realistic to me. I had thoughts about this. I, when I saw that number, I, I had a similar thought and then I started to think about, okay, what would you actually potentially be buying for that amount of money? And I wonder if they're trying to do something more akin to the UFC Endeavor deal where you have a fully vertically integrated model. And if you're not familiar with that deal, the, um, the UFC, it owns all of its talent. The talent in the UFC has no collective bargaining rights. They're, uh, they're contractors, I believe of the UFC or they're at will employees And so the UFC creates the ceiling for the amount of money fighters can make. They also determine the purse of pay-per-view fights. They determine what percent fighters get from the pay-per-view. They own all the rights to marketing the fighters' images. They They used to allow the fighters to have their own sponsors, which they could advertise on their their fighting trunk shorts or in posters in their corners they can no longer do that the ufc owns all the ad surfaces 
on the fighters in the ring and they own all the TV rights. Uh, it's a, it's, it's a very similar deal and they control everything. So they're, you know, so if you were to do that, so if you bought all of the world tour team licenses, you were funding the teams, you would own the talent. You could mandate that they show up to do specific races and, you know, like, Hey, Pog has to be at these, I don't know, 30 races and so does Remco. So we're not going to run into the, but I don't know if we're going to get into this, but Lefebvre's comments this week, Rem, Remco may not race the tour in 24. That is I awesome. <laughs> I love that. Man, it's this so guy amazing. is like, yeah, he's, he's like, yeah, he's like a next level troll. It's like, he, he really does know how to keep himself in the news. But yeah, so I think that that's, I don't know if you had $600 million, maybe that's what you do. You go and buy up 10 world tour licenses. You fund those 10 teams. You have a salary. You have an actual salary cap, which Pluga also talked about when we interviewed him yeah. and is spoken about in the press. Okay. So now you have, you know, you have, you know, exactly what your product costs. You're limiting the amount of money the writers can make. They still have no collective bargaining rights. I don't think that in that instance, writers are likely to suddenly have an effective union. In fact, they may be more, uh, they may be less empowered in that instance than they are today, which is hard to imagine. And then you own all the TV rights and you can mandate what teams show up where and, you know, just move the pieces around, sell all the TV rights, and maybe you have a highly saleable product. I do think one thing that's missing right now, and maybe this is part of the vision that they're selling, and I think Unchained and some of the other content that we've seen in the last year is probably helping to paint the picture of what the sport could become. And, you know, going back actually to Gravel and Big Sugar and people like Dylan Johnson and Drew Dillman, like what we've seen in the gravel side of the sport because of the manner in which writers are mediating themselves, creating content and telling their stories. It's quite interesting and engaging. And that hasn't been the case with world tour cycling. And I think we got a little bit of a taste of that with Unchained that like when you start to tell the story of who these athletes actually are as human beings, you start to have some of the drama in sports entertainment that you need to make this a highly saleable entertainment product. So I think that's overall what they're trying to do potentially. And again, like I would love to see it happen, just also knowing how the sport works and the manner in which it's funded by almost Medici like billionaires. It just seems unlikely to me that they're going to get it all together and do it. Yeah. And there would be some, God, I still, I would have a hard time advising anyone to do that. Like really what you want to own in cycling are the races. Like the people who make money are ASO, RCS and Flanders classic. Owning a team is, it's kind of a sucker's game. I mean, it's like owning a soccer team. It's a license to spend money. Owning 10 teams would be very, you can't, only one person can own one team. So I guess there would be some legal obstacles and also salary caps are illegal in Europe. I, we would have had more time. I would have pressed Bluga on that and how we would actually implement that in a place where you can't have salary caps. But maybe you could do that. You'd still, I think the problem is unless you own ASO or RCS, you're in such a weak position because it's just this one behemoth family business still controls everything in the sport because the tour is still the most important thing. Like here's just a thought experiment. Let's just say Piff bought RCS. They now own the Giro d'Italia. 
Your Giro d'Italia is now in July. They pay the top riders $20 million per rider to go to the Giro instead of to the Tour. So you have like Pogacar, Vindigo, Wout, Vanderpool. They're all at the Giro running at the same time as the Tour de France. Does the Tour de France still overshadow the Giro? It's possible it does. You know, like we would be watching the Giro, but I don't know. I think that the Tour is such a strong brand that even if all the best riders were at the Giro and it was running at the same time, they would still be in a stronger position. But now this is where, this is how Hiff destroyed the PGA. Even though Liv was like a joke and not successful, you'd say, what they did was they destroyed the PGA's business because the PGA could no longer sell ads for what they needed to sell them for, like sponsorships for the events. The PGA just ran out of money and essentially they were purchased by Piff who used the, uh, the, like, the ridiculousness of live to kind of rattle them and, and shorten their time horizon so that they were susceptible to a takeover by live or slash Piff. It's, I guess it's still ongoing, but that will probably go through if I had to guess. But it's, so you think, where are, so where are we? What are we talking about? So is this a good idea? Yes, I think it is. Why are we hearing about this? This is going to be my next question. It would seem if you were doing this, because it's only six teams, it's very vulnerable. Because if you're not in that click of six teams, think if you're FDJ right now, or you're Ajay Duer, or you're Kofidis, you're probably pretty mad. You're like, wait, wait a second. What are you guys going to do? And now I'm on the outs. So you have all these other team managers that are now pissed at Richard Pluga, are objecting to this, are going to try to ruin this. And then you also hear Piff is involved, which I think for most people now are like, well, I don't want this. I don't want Piff involved in cycling. This sounds like a terrible idea. And if this thing is like already facing backlash because of these early leaks, it would have been in the best interest of this project for us never to hear about it until the day it launched, which is, which is essentially what happened with Liv. So why do you think this was leaked? And it was probably leaked by someone inside inside the six team group wouldn't you say yeah absolutely this this was leaked on purpose as <laughs> as is the case yeah. with almost almost all leaks and i think the reason that someone inside the deal went to the press and gave this information on background not for attribution which is what you would do if you were going to go place this story and you didn't want to be named is they're trying strategically this is a trial balloon so they're trying to see what is public sentiment if the deal goes down in this fashion with the funding from the sources that are specified so some party on some side of the deal wants to just get a the vibe for number one how would this go over potentially and number two they also may have done it to calibrate the level of excitement among the cycling public and just to get some momentum for the deal itself and to show like, Hey, people are very excited about this. So for example, if you were trying to persuade ASO who, again, I just, I just see no reason for them. As you said, like, why would they give up the leverage that they have? Uh, even if you're going to bake a bigger pizza, if you're ASO, I think you're probably thinking, well, hold on, we'll bake the pizza. We'll go out and raise the money and we'll buy all the teams but as you pointed out, like there's actually, there just appears to be a very low incentive to get into the business of owning teams because there's not a lot of financial upside. And currently, it's the case that 
if you're a team, you have to show up at the Tour de France and, and yeah. be in the race, right? It's like that's kind the of tour part. has all the leverage in that. Yeah. So so that's the magic of the of just the entire system that they've set up, which is, you know, as an aside, part of what I think is really interesting about the lifetime Grand Prix in two years, they've, they kind of have created, they're of course not at the level of the Tour de France, but I think they've done a fantastic job of creating demand among professional athletes and getting them to compete, to be in the lifetime series through an application process. And then those pros all have large content operations and social media followings that publicize the lifetime events and incentivize amateurs wanting to go and participate in the events, which helps the events sell out and kind of guarantees that there'll be bucket list events over time, which I think is very savvy from a business and marketing point of view. Going back to your question, so why was the information leaked? Somebody on some side of the deal either wants to calibrate what sentiment about this or they want to show the other side, hey, look, people are really interested in this happening. And I think that's the response that we saw in cycling media. Going and leaking it to Reuters also suggests that someone, um, yeah, someone who's very savvy with working with the business press plays this story. So what they did here is they uh, they placed what you would call a foundational story. So if you're a communications professional, they went and placed this in a very high authority outlet, knowing that if it were published there, because it's highly credible, people are going to trust the information that then like all endemic outlets within uh, cycling journalism are just going to go around and they're going to turn around and write a story off this story. They're going to use the information that's all highly curated and and was leaked to the this set of reporters on purpose. So that's exactly what you do when you're trying to set a narrative foundation. You go to a reporter, give them the information uh, on background, not for attribution. You know, they publish the story, and then if you execute this playbook properly, then fifty or a hundred other outlets turn around and write the same thing. And you've controlled the narrative, which is exactly what happened here. So this is a very savvy move. Well, it's almost like we have a script here because I've been working the phones. I've been working my sources. Yeah. I've had, I have it on pretty good authority and I've heard pretty compelling cases that this was Jonathan Butters talking to the Reuters reporters and then also Jeremy Whittle as the leaker inside the organization. When you just described why it would happen and how it would happen, you're Kind of, you're describing a, a savvy individual such, such as Jonathan. So I don't know if he did, but it it would kind of stand to reason he would be the one in that group of six that would do that. The Piff one is a little odd to me. Like th- that seems like you're only going to get overly negative attention. But maybe he's trying to get maybe he's trying to get the attention of Piff. Like well, Piff reads about themselves investing in this and like, oh, that's interesting. Maybe we should do that. Yeah, potentially, or this could be the case of just tearing the Band-Aid off, knowing that there's going to be negative sentiment around their involvement. Just get the story out there, pull the Band-Aid off. And then there are a lot of things that you can do to manage that if there indeed is is negative backlash. At least you know, number one, yes, people have strong feelings about this. And then number two, when it comes to sports washing, I think that what we've seen over the past couple of years is showing the average person has become totally desensitized to uh, the involvement of countries that have 
horrific human rights violations being involved in buying up professional sports around the world. And they're just like, whatever. I think they've, most people have stopped caring about it or it's a non-factor. They're just like, Oh, okay. That's another, whatever. Another sport is now owned by whoever. I, I don't think people really care at this point. So I think this, uh, could just be part of the process of desensitization of people who consume cycling content and just like pulling the bandaid off and getting it underway. I think this is an example of where I think you're right. Nobody cares except the people who write about sports who kind of obsessively talk about sports washing or were scandalized by MBS's comments. Did you see this interview where they asked him about sports washing and he said, I think it's good or whatever. I don't care. But like, what, what did people want? And that's like asking a cold virus what it thinks about people having runny noses. It's going to say, sounds good to me. I don't know. (laughs) What do you, what do you want me to say? Like, I thought that was odd that people that that was like a gotcha question or something. It's like, I think he probably is pro sports washing and thinks that it's not even sports washing because he doesn't have anything to wash. But you're right that the average person does not care about it. Like Newcastle is a team in the English premier league. They were purchased by PIF. Uh, maybe a year ago, year and a half ago, everyone was very upset about it when it happened. A lot of hand wringing. No one talks about it anymore. And the team is quite good. And the team is actually really well run. Uh, you look at like Manchester United, which is owned by an American family, like a good, a good, good people, shall we say, in the in the soccer world, you'd say they're doing it the right way. Um, and they're run terribly, like they're a mess. And then you have Newcastle, who spends far less money, owned by PIF. I guess evil, as you would say, or or as the media would cast them, just kind of as I would say, like building a team the right way, and and they're a really impressive squad. So I think that these things can. Maybe you're right. Maybe this was leaked to just kind of get it out of the way, and then by the time the deal goes through, nobody cares about it. Having said all that, I'm still highly skeptical that any of this could work if you're not if you're not buying the track, shall we say, the robo tracks, if you're just buying cars to put on those tracks, it feels like the business is, is always going to be tough. But, you know, I do, if, if this is true and this is really happening, I, I wish Richard Pluga the best. I think it's a good idea. I think it's ridiculous that a lot of times, you know, like even think of the Tour de France. It's like I was in a meeting with some people and they were like, well, we're excited for the tour because like the best riders are going to be there. And I was like, I got news for you, buddies. They're not like the, the world champion, right. Rip Covenable, not at the tour, might not even be there next year. So yeah, I, I do think this has like gotten completely out of hand that you almost never see the best riders racing against each other. Like you would never have the British Open golf tournament and like the best golfers be doing some other random event on that day. Like, I think that's kind of embarrassing. I've gone back and forth on this with like certain former and current stakeholders in the sport. And some people see it as part of the charm, but I think what the danger is what we could see as part of the charm is just off-putting to a casual fan. Who's like, so I'm going to watch, like, why would I watch Lee's best on the age? Like, what does this mean? Why is this important? And if you could tie that together in some sort of league, maybe that would help kind of simplify that for people's minds. Yeah, just to pull on this thread a bit more, because as you were talking, what I started to think about, which I probably should have considered well before we started having this conversation, if this whole thing worked out, who would benefit from it the most? And just thinking about the financial structure of the sport and the conversations we had around the time 
of the alleged Yumbo quick step merger. You know, as we talked about it, Spencer, it seems to be the case that if you own a world tour license, as you said, all it is is a license to spend money. It's not necessarily a license to make money. So if you were a world tour license holder, this roll up happened. Would it be the case that this would be a way for a world tour license holder to actually get paid some substantial amount of money to relinquish uh what really is just a requirement to pay a massive payroll every year that you're constantly struggling to find sponsors to get financial backing to be able to pay. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, it would. Right? If, and I guess that would be a little far-fetched that one in any buys, entity buys them all. But even let's just say this is successful and Pluga's one cycling happens, they're getting, they're selling the TV slots and let's set aside if that makes any sense, why I would race to sell it to them. But let's say they do and they're making money and they're distributing that amongst the world tour teams. If you're, if you own FDJ, if you're Mark Matteo, that's kind of not, that's, that's a pretty good deal because you're getting money when you weren't, you were just spending money before. Like if the distributions from this pooling, let's say it's, say it's 40% of your annual budget, that's 40% you didn't have before. So it's not, it wouldn't be all negative for these teams. So maybe that could be identified as like a reason they would get on board. And now that I think about it with the like tour Flanders, Flanders classic is a really well-run organization. They do a good job at those races, tour Flanders, big race. I would say second biggest race of the year. It's on like flow bikes in the U S which essentially nobody has. So maybe it isn't beyond belief that some other organization like what could they possibly be selling that to flow bikes for? It can't be a great amount of money. Like maybe someone else could just come along and buy that. And it's on ESPN like F1 was, you know, making a, now they're making a lot of money from ESPN and, you know, about a million, I think like a million people watch those a week, which is a lot, but that's not that much more than a really big cycling race that's on, you know, what used to be NBC or NBC sports. So you know, maybe someone could, could find a path here. Yeah. So I think most people, most of the people who are behind teams, who are the actual financial owners of teams, as I understand it, have a transcendent level of wealth. And this is just, it's something of a novelty for them or an ego thing to be able to finance a professional cycling team. But I, I'm just wondering, does this create like a liquidity event or an exit opportunity for current world tour license owners? To, I don't know, to make some large multiple of whatever they put into the team. And maybe that's the incentive for them. And I really don't sure. think a lot of people are. I mean, if you like Jim Ratcliffe, who owns Ineos, clearly a wealthy man, and it is just fun for him. But, you know, like I think like Vincent Lavenu owns AG2R. I think he owns the license and he's just like a former writer and he gets AG2R to sponsor the team. But I think he's he's kind of just making the budget work every year. He's getting what he gets from the sponsors right. and paying out what he's paying out to the team. And if someone did come along and offer him a liquidity event, as you say, as you say in your uh, your Bay Area speak, then they would probably he'd probably be pretty pumped about that. There, I think there are more like I hesitate to say middle class, but like working people who have to work owning professional cycling licenses that, that would be quite interested in, in being able to sell that for a lot of money. One thing that is quite scandalous in Europe that is funny because my American mind can't even register, register it as scandalous, but 
that if one cycling did work, I'm getting a call from the Netherlands, by the way, maybe they've heard too much. They're trying to shut us down, Andrew. <laughs> Pegasus on your phone. I mean, yeah. yeah, they're listening. But that this would, let's say this was successful. It would be like a franchise model. So there would be, you know, 18 or 16 world tour teams or teams in the top flight. And those would never change. Like if you wanted to be in that top flight, you would have to buy a franchise license from one of those teams. This like goes against all European sporting unwritten rules where they all have to be open league. So like technically if you and I wanted to, we could start to be on the Peloton cycling team and we work our way up and we're in the Tour de France and then we we're at world tour and we've started from the bottom. Like in practice, this is not how it works because to even get invites to enough races to qualify to have enough points to qualify for the world tour, you have to be extremely well connected, have a massive ha- massive budget. So essentially we are like effectively in a franchise model. Like if you want to be a world tour team you you have to buy a license it's very hard to work your way into that unless you're like uno x and you have a lot a lot of money and you have the ability to go to a lot of races so do do you have any qualms about that i think it would be totally fine i actually think a lot of ways and some people worry that a team could just be terrible and stay in the world tour but effectively that's currently what is happening you know like there's teams that are just consistently bad or mediocre yeah. that are never going to get relegated. Yeah, it would be more fun if you had a more even distribution of talent. What would make that happen is if there were greater financial parity among the teams. Yeah. And yeah, I think it would be an entirely different level of competition. It truly would transform the sport if you didn't have haves and have-nots. I mean, I, I guess this just on its face almost goes without saying. Like We see this across sport when you have financial inequality among teams it just the level of competition is not as interesting so i think it'd be really fun and uh i think it'd be more fun to watch the sport and there still would be some disparity of course but just to uh to see strategic approaches coaching approaches team culture to more deeply inform outcomes of races versus Oh boy, you know, now Yumbo has a budget that's five times as big as I don't know. You you could name some team that has a a tiny budget. But so um that, I mean you've say you've segued us perfectly here. Perfectly. Yeah. Seamlessly. So speaking of budgets, I've so I it is about it is uh on like a I guess loosely reported good guesses, educated guesses have Yumbo's budget for next year. I guess it's Visma Lisa Bike is the unofficial name of the team. We'll see if that's actually true. Like around 25 to 30 million euros. Um, for a comparison, I've heard that UAE is around 40 million euros. And then believe it or not, do you want to guess Ineo's budget from the the most recent report I have is the 2020 season? Do you want to guess what their budget is? Hundred million dollars? No, that'd be a lot. It's it's fifty million euros, so qu- quite a bit bigger. You know, that's like fifteen million more. There, no, I guess that'd be like twenty million more than Yumbo. If if that number, that thirty million number, is to be believed, that's not great for the performance they're getting. I mean, that is that is a very big budget for what they're getting. And then apparently, Jen Radcliffe, who's now bought 25% or I guess in the process of buying 25% of Manchester United for a lot of money, 1.6 billion, but that's not a ton of money for him. What is expensive is owning the team though. Once you own a soccer team, you spend a ton of money. And 
So he's hired a, like, this is all what I've heard. I haven't seen proof of this, but allegedly he hired like a management consulting firm to come in, do a review of the team. They found it, uh, what you would guess. A lot of people are overpaid and it's incredibly inefficient. And apparently he's cut the budget by 10 million euros for next season. So that would kind of explain why there was some of the transfer weirdness where people weren't getting re-signed. We weren't clear what was happening. Why didn't Garen Thomas have a contract? Why was Carlos Rodriguez leaving and then now he's coming? And I guess they were serious about trying to sign Roglic and Evanapol, but you know, with that budget cut, they just probably didn't have the financial muscle. It sounds crazy to say, but like to compete with Bora, who gave Roglic a big contract and paid a buyout. Apparently they, they gave him like 6 million euros a year and then bought him out for 3 million euros. So that's a huge investment for that guy. So Ineos is now a broke team, still probably the biggest budget in the sport, but it, it has shrunk quite a bit. And then it's interesting that Yumbo's doing so much with a budget that is not you know, that let's just say at most would be roughly on par with UAE and still far below Ineos. Well, for anyone out there who has had the unfortunate experience of, you know, being through rounds of layoffs at a company or right sizing or having had management consultants come in and then create efficiencies, I'm I'm kind of surprised that they didn't just tell Ineos to take six riders to the tour and ask them to do more with less. <laughs> you know, we're going to elevate you. We're going to give you the spotlight so you can shine. <laughs> so yeah. You're all going to be doing a little bit more, but it will be worth it. Yeah. We're not going to increase your titles at the Tour de France or your compensation, but you're going to have the opportunity to, to work a little bit harder and shine on this, <laughs> on this stage. The chance yeah. to show management you know, your, your talent and your skills. This is, this is a positive for you. Um, apparently they re-signed a lot of people for less, which is, which oh. stinks, right? For those guys. But that's also a sign that they were paid too much because if you go to market and you go back to the same team for less money, it means that you were paid above market rate and there was no one willing to match that. Yeah. Uh, something else I wanted to note, Spencer, because as we were kind of pulling on the thread of what's happening and why and who might be behind different things with the information that we're consuming. I recalled that Jonathan Vauders had penned an essay in the Escape Collective not too long ago in the middle of the rumors about the Yumbo Quickstep merger. And I totally missed this. Yeah, so I, I pulled this up. It was an opinion piece, which they they don't run a lot of op-eds over there at the escape collective and uh and if anybody missed wade wallace's piece on the uh trek little hockey experience at the off-season training camp you're going to want to check that out i thought that was an interesting piece shout out wade but anyway this uh this waters piece is titled amid merger mania a call for financial fairness and permanent team rights so now that i'm recalling this uh, it's it's starting to make me think that this is actually a multi-stage play that's happening in the media, and that would all make sense. So this would be a sequence of events trying to set the stage for the narrative that is now kind of taking off. I also would say that if I were involved in this, it seems like, <laughs> ironically, it seems like the most effective thing to do to control narratives in the world of the business of cycling is just to have Patrick Lefebvre or Richard Pluga go on a foreign language to us podcast, 
say something and then tell an American journalist in the cycling press what they allegedly said, and then you're guaranteed coverage. <laughs> it's it is shock. Maybe it was always like this, and we just did notice. But it does yeah. seem like everything is just if you like really hunt and peck, it's like, oh, you just got this from Raymond Kirkhoff's piece and the name of the publication that I will not try to pronounce, but it's it's very good. People should look up Raymond Kirkhoff's publication. Just read it on Google Translate and you'll have all the news oh. for American media. I'm not going to I'm not going to read this whole piece. You should go check it out. It's over on the Escape Collective. But uh, what's jumping out of me, I was just scrolling this sentence. Uh, the title of this section is A Lack of True Assets. Unlike other league modeled true professional sports, cycling teams lack a true anchoring asset that investors want to buy. Yeah, I mean, I could sit here all day and talk about this, but just to sum it up, you don't you don't have any assets, as Jonathan Vodder said. But to like break that down, like let's say we own a soccer team and we want to sell it. We would have assets like maybe we own our stadium, but a lot of teams don't own their stadium, especially like NFL teams. Those are sometimes city owned and they don't own You you paid like several billion dollars for that team to have that stadium. Yeah. Yeah. Oftentimes you, the taxpayer, are the owner of the team. And so that is so let's say you own the stadium. So you own the stadium, you maybe own your team bus, you own the kit, the boots. That's all pretty similar to cycling. But the thing you really own, I guess, is the name, the brand. So if you're a big brand and you can sell jerseys, like that's always going to be a nice revenue stream. But the the really the way teams make a lot of money is it's not seating, which but it, that is like that's decent. F and B, as people would say, food and beverage, beer, brats, whatever during the game. That that is significant, but it's not the majority. Really, these teams they make almost all of their money from from TV revenues. So they sign contracts with broadcasters like ESPN or NBC, we're going to pay you $29 billion over the next seven years to broadcast your games. I mean, that really is the main asset of most professional franchises. The right. contract they have with broadcasters to broadcast their games because that gives them billions of dollars a year in income that is guaranteed for the length of that contract. So I think a lot of people fall into the trap saying like, well, cycling teams could never have assets because there's no stadium. There's no seats. There's no food and beverage to sell. And, and I would even quibble with that. I think you could, like, wouldn't people pay quite a bit? It's like eat dinner with the team a couple times during the tour. Like, you know, there are VIP experiences you could sell to people. Hold, hold on a second. Spencer, are you saying that these teams should sell NFTs I, and then... <laughs> Definitely. As part of the NFT purchase, you get access to special one-on-one experiences or unique yeah, content. Like sleep in Wout's hotel room with him the night before Tour de France stage eight. Perfect. Yeah. I, I don't know how Wout would feel about that. But there's, a, there's an option. You know, maybe you could help him die in his streak. Yeah. 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 <laughs> You're like combing Jasper's hair, Jasper Philipson's hair. Before you put yeah. the helmet on. By um, the way, I know, I know we don't have video with this podcast, but I want to point out that I dyed my beard black for Halloween because I plan to go as Hulk Hogan. Part two of the costume was I was going to dye my hair white blonde like Hulk. I didn't have time to get to that, but I feel like a new man since dyeing my beard. I, yeah, it was kind of throwing me off. I was like, God, maybe Andrew always had a really dark beard and I never noticed. <laughs> but, now this makes a lot of sense. 
was like, I was like, God, am I just never paying attention? What is going on here? I've been clean shaven for months. I it really disturbed the kids. I started growing the beard out. And I just kind of told them like, Hey, watch this. <laughs> watch, watch what happens. Um, yeah, I think Butters, believe number six. Yeah, Butters actually lays us out for scanning this this op ed that he wrote. He, you know, he's been like hammering this for years and years. Same thing, but yeah, he does a pretty good job of collating it all and laying it out, laying it out about why this would be good. And actually, as I read this, it kind of looks like a document that he came up with with the other team managers. That this is totally uh, like a controlled, not controlled demolition, but like a controlled. These are controlled little things he's dropping into the media to kind of paint the picture. The PIF thing was maybe to get our outrage out of the way before it actually happens. Yeah. Um, yeah, you can kind of see now now that we go back and read this, you can kind of see uh what real kind of real kind of Kaiser Sose type of vibe. The uh you know, another thing we didn't talk about, we did talk about Velon and the Hammer series. There also was the Walton report, the Walton family, Tom and Stewart. The, uh, the Walton heirs are, who are behind everything that went down in Bentonville also own Allied, Rafa, a couple of other companies. They commissioned a report through Rafa, I want to say in 2016, about what needed to happen in professional cycling for the sport to grow. These are pretty much all the recommendations that were made in the report. So this stuff's been floating around for a long time. Again, I'd, I'd love to see it come to life. I am a partner in the company that wrote that report. Just full disclosure for everybody. Okay. It was before I was involved with them, though. Um, it's, it's called The Outer Line. Joe Harris, Steve Maxwell were the guys that wrote the report before I was involved with them. And I'm sure they would love that shout out, Andrew, that you just gave them because they often get frustrated that people just I steal ideas it. from that report without yeah, they actually crediting yeah. them. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's, uh, if you haven't read it, it's on the... Rafa, I think it's He's on called the, the Rafa. Rafa Roadmap, I think is what it's called. Yeah. Not to be confused with the Rafa Impact Report, which is what came up first when I searched for Rafa Report. To go back to this, where were we? How do we wrap this up? We were yeah. oh, so the Hammer Series. This is what I wanted to talk about with the, the Hammer Series. It was a failure. I think it's like hard to uh, to sum up like how that's pretty, the that's, Hammer that's Series harsh. Was. That's harsh. I mean, their website hasn't been updated since <laughs> 2021. To be fair, COVID, it's been tough. And COVID has been tough. It's hard to get those events going these days. But the thing is about the Hammer Series is I, I, I don't know why they did this, but they did points races. Do you remember this? So if you're yeah, not familiar. Yeah, it's the NCL model. Yeah. Yeah. Points races are usually done on the track and you race and like every, let's just say 10 laps, you sprint for points at the end of the race. Whoever has the most points wins. So it's not necessarily who crosses the finish line first. The Hammer Series thought this would be a good idea. And yeah, NCL does the same thing. Good idea to do on the road. Sometimes you can do these. Like these are a staple of local cycling in the US. You know, you go out on Tuesday night to like a police driving track and you do points races. And they're really good to develop your fitness and they're really good to learn how to sprint because you sprint like 10 times in one race. Great for a training thing to learn how to race bikes. Not good for like a featured television event. Because you're watching it and you're very confused what's going on. And, you know, I, I remember, I think it was the first one in Limburg, the first Hammer Series race. And I was watching and my wife was like, you know, we got to go somewhere. Let's go. And I almost had, I almost was like, I just hold on. I want to see who wins this race. And then I had to remember like, doesn't matter. 
because we already know because they've racked up so many points, <laughs> the end is done already in the middle of the race. And it's yeah. like, maybe this isn't a good idea for, for like building your breakaway series around. But the thing that the hammer series did was I, th- I did think it normalized racing hard from start to finish. Like those, if you looked at the powered files from those races, it was absolutely yeah. ridiculous how hard these guys were going for, right. they were like two and a half, three hour races. And what's funny is that's kind of the way races are done now. So I, I do kind of wonder if the Hammer Series normalized start to finish all out racing at the professional level. Yeah, potentially. Something that has not happened at the all out level, in my view, is follow on press for Sepkus after his Vuelta a España win. And I don't know if you saw this, he, he did an interview with Flow Sports. I think he did it within the last. 10 days. It currently has about 90,000 views on YouTube and it's a, uh, you know, it's a pretty explosive interview. He talks about what actually happened in the room the night they had the team meeting about who should be leading the race after the, the triple attack. Right. Have you seen, did you see the interview? I didn't see it. I'm just learning about this interview right now. Yeah. Uh, so team management, again, there was, there were two things that came out there was cycling press in the United States wrote about an interview that I think was maybe given in Dutch uh, by the team manager about what happened that night. And then Sepp did an interview about the same thing. So it's all come out in the last week. And just to recap, if you're not up to speed on it, the team management said, Hey, we think that it's important that you, the writers figure this out among yourselves and sat them down at a table. <laughs> they had to have the very awkward conversation about who do we think should be leading the race, which, you know, that's an interesting way to, uh, to uh, you know, going back to the culture that Pluga has spoken about building within the team. So they just let the writers themselves determine it. And what ended up happening is they all kind of, um, they all wanted to support Sep and Primo said, actually, I, I want to ride for the win. And then it sounds like they basically turned on him and then he had to capitulate and say, yeah, I'm going to ride for Sep. Or, you know, the more positive view of that would be he came around and figured uh, this is actually what I should do. It's the right thing to do. I highly doubt that's what he, how he actually felt. But that's what ended yeah. up happening. I'm bringing this up because I actually felt, you know, and like, again, when we interviewed Pluga, you talked about how the English speaking audience and particularly North America is, is super important to them as is a market for the team. And there was not a massive amount of mainstream coverage of Sepp Kuss following his win at the Vuelta, but he definitely had momentum. And I, I feel like that would have been a great time for the team just to do more of a, uh, a communications campaign and actually try to elevate Sepp as a notable professional athlete in the United States. And it's great that he went back to Durango and had the parade. I just feel like there's a lot more of that story that could have been told over time and no disrespect to flow sports. I think that's an awesome get. It's just 90,000 views for a guy that won a major grand tour with a story that I think had pretty substantial interest for a much bigger audience in the united states yeah normally i would say like it's the welta and it's america nobody cares but it did feel like there was quite a pop like let's say five or six days after he won i mean like he like they were mentioned on the pivot podcast which is a massive podcast 
that does not talk about sports rarely ever. The fact that they're talking about Sepkus and Yumbo winning Vuelta tells me there was like an appetite. If they had a savvier, if like you worked for Yumbo in their communications department, I feel like you would have had them like jumping on that opportunity. Sepkus is boom. He's on the Pivot podcast. You know, I think if they could have leverage that in the, the 14 days after the win, they, they could have had a, a lot bigger impact in the US. And I think that's what the sport has to do going forward is like they have to actually tell the dramatic story of what's going on with these individuals and turn them into real characters if you want to have sports entertainment versus turning on the TV and you just a bunch of people and you know, robo helmets with space ball helmets with face shields. You can't tell who they are unless you're super inside the sport right yeah and like sep's been like letting it fly since he won that race i feel well like. yeah i mean he really does it's just like i did not expect him to say that yeah yeah and that's probably we can probably get into this there's a lot going to be a lot to talk about in the off season maybe we even get sep coos on here sep if you're listening the door is open we'd love to talk to you i'm wondering what's going to go down at the tour because sep has now said Jonas is the leader and the road will decide more <laughs> kind of some version of that. Like we're going to yeah. go into the race with two leaders. It's like, Oh, all right. You know, we've got Primos over at Bora. Rimco is definitely going to show up. You know, he's not going to have a team that's at the level of UAE Bora or Yumbo. I don't think, but we're going to see a hell of a race. I think come July. Yeah, I mean, Remco has to, if he doesn't show up, yeah, that would be awesome. Just like, yeah, yeah. I actually don't think the tour is that big. I'm going to watch me win San Sebastian for the fourth time. Um, yeah, because yeah, Sep is saying, yeah, uh, Jonas is the leader. I do think the last week is pretty good for me, though. Pretty good route for me. <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> I love it. I know. And it, it is actually really good for him. It's a much... I I don't know if I would like if you're a casual, it's like maybe just skip the first half of this tour. I mean, I, I could be wrong. There could something could happen, but this route comes out and you know, like they go over the Galibier on stage four. The first three stages are all over 200k. I think two of them are mountainous in Italy. One's a sprint stage, maybe. God, it might not even be it. I have to go back and check that. But stage four is like goes through the Alps back into France, and I think people look at that and they think there's going to be fireworks in the first week of this tour. I don't think so. I think that's all going to be pretty, you know, if you're going to find out that someone didn't do their homework and they're going to get dropped, but if they're all, everyone who could win the tour is going to stick together. No one's going to get dropped on those opening days. And then the last week, since they don't have the finish in Paris, it kind of, it lengthens the tour kind of effectively because it adds a GC day at the end. So like stage 17 to 21 are all really hard. And yeah. like, that's going to be a really tough final week. Uh, it will be yeah. interesting to see what happens there. And it is good. For, he's right. It is good for him. Um, I, I do think if Jonas is on form, none of this really matters. I would love to. Yeah, I'm in hot pursuit of Sepu. So we're going to try to get him on this podcast in the offseason. I'd love to hear what he says about it. If you want to talk about, should we go break over to uh, our gravel corner for a second? Just talk about sure. a few things taking place off-road. Enough of this pro to pro world tour cycling who cares about it um big sugar in arkansas just one thing i wanted to talk about there you kind of already touched on it no one can beat bentonville bentonville's like bigger than all of us you know they, they hosted the big sugar race it is a massive event and like you know we went to bwr kansas week before big sugar it felt like 
it felt like Big Sugar kind of ate BWR Kansas. Like I think maybe there's other reasons that that event kind of puttered out. Like I don't think BWR is ever going back to Lawrence. It doesn't seem like they're on the schedule for next year, but it felt like Bentonville just sucked up all the oxygen and essentially killed that any any momentum BWR Kansas had. And it feels like whenever they want, they can just like call the biggest names in US cycling, whether it be mountain bike, gravel, or cyclocross to them. And there's nothing anyone can do about it. Like, am I off base there? I think you pretty much hit the nail on the head, Spencer. You stopped the freight train on its tracks and the riders climbed right through it. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it also turned out, I, w- I wasn't aware of this. They did have the Little Sugar 100K. And also, like, why do we have 100K mountain bike races? Could we just say, you know, 62 miles and change? Yeah. Anyway. Um, yeah. So they had the 100K Little Sugar mountain bike race the day after bwr kansas so it was about you know it was a week prior to big sugar tom pidcock was there racing in little sugar so yeah i mean they had they had all the hitters in there that's i mean also pidcock won his cyclocross world championship at bentonville on a very peculiar course that I, you know, I don't think it's really a world championship course, except it was. Like, don't you think two years ago, Pickcock would have been like Remco Evanapol was at BWR Kansas. Like, I feel like yeah. Pickcock would have got sent to that, but yeah, totally. It's like, yeah, correct. I, you see gravel kind of falling into the same thing that happened to the domestic road scene where there was success. And then you start getting double bookings for weekends or too yeah, close. Completely. And then yeah. they just kind of all cannibalize each other. That's yeah. something I am slightly worried about. I, could, I think Steamboat Gravels on a Saturday and then Leadville's on a Sunday. I, I think that's right. Where it feels like maybe you could space those out a little bit, but you know, maybe it's more complicated than I'm imagining. Yeah, potentially. They, I think they were separated by a week this year. I don't know if it was intentionally okay. or not. You're correct, though. It's a very crowded calendar now, and I think that it's going to diminish the drawing power of certain races. And, you know, I know we talked about this in our, um, when we talked about BWR Kansas, but sorry, I just lost my concentration well, by somebody's I- skating on the half pipe of my house right now, wondering what's going <laughs> don't on. Don't look, don't yeah. look. Anytime you look yeah. out the window, it, it's sudden death. I'm not moment. even looking. I can just, I can hear skateboarding <laughs> going on on the ramp. And now, now you're going to have me thinking about it. I'm going to lose my train of thought. But a few things to yeah. tie up about BWR Kansas. We should give props to people who did the 100, and I think it was 123 miles, maybe 126 event. That was hard. We did the 80 to whatever it was. It felt like 820 miles. I think it was 82 miles though. So that's what we mainly talked about in the last episode. I cannot imagine doing a 123 mile event. That's crazy. You're all heroes. Thank you for your service. Another thing is I felt like it made it sound like I didn't train at all. And I was like, I just showed up and yeah, it kind of it kind of sounded like yeah. you came off the couch and just casually totally kicked <laughs> yeah, my so ass and, and got second place in your age group. <laughs> Clarify. <laughs> I mean, Spencer, were you taking some of that hockey gas? Before this? <laughs> yeah, the Russian gas. I'm going to have to bump that to next week, by the way. Man, I wanted to talk about that. The inf- the amphetamine, underbelly of amphetamines in professional hockey, which maybe is happening in pro cycling. But um, so I, I was quite, in August, I got quite a few good days of training in, in Italy, like a six-hour day, which is a lot for me, um, with, a, with like a lot of like 7,000 feet of climbing 
And then I was doing hard riding like every day, like a couple days I would do like three or four hours with big, big Italian climbs. And then by the end of the trip, I did feel myself getting stronger. I was like, oh, like this is what training is. You feel better the more you ride. Didn't ride that much during the Vuelta because I was busy with work. And then, and I don't recommend this for anyone. Um, I did like years and years of high volume, you know, coach prescribed training. So I'm sure that's helped me in the present. But, you know, my strategy between the end of the Vuelta and BWR was I do, I try, I do, I do try to ride every day. I think that helps. I read like try to try to ride a minimum of an hour every day. 90 minutes is a long ride for me. But I ride quite hard, like a lot harder than I w- did when I was racing. Like I ride okay. a lot of sweet spot. And, right. you know, because if you go over threshold, you start to, you know, you start to fatigue and it's harder to train the next day. I ride a lot of just right below threshold for extended periods. Started doing that during COVID because I would just go out. Um, my wife was pregnant, so I didn't want to be too far away from home. So I'd just be like, I'll climb and I'll never be more than 20 minutes away if I need to get home. So I ended up just riding a lot of sweet spot on like 40, 50 minute climbs, got quite fast doing that. I've kind of been doing that since it helps you train if you don't have a lot of raw time to train. And then like my, the, the switch I flipped to get ready for BWR is like going three day batches. So like still doing that one hour to 90 minute training. And then I'd try to do two hours minimum three days in a row with a TSS around like 150. Um, my goal would be like if I could get four thousand feet of climbing on those two hours, like that's that's good for me. Okay. That's a lot of climbing for me. So it's yeah. like that two two hours, three days in a row, boom, boom, boom. You know, maybe some life gets in the way for two more days, and then like do another three day block, few days. I, I hesitate to say off because I am still doing maybe some rides or some runs in between them, but I did like a decent block of those like three days consecutive of two hours. And, if, and it doesn't sound that hard, but if you go out and you try to ride, climb 4,000 feet in two hours, it's not easy at all, you know? And it's like, you might not like be draining yourself like it's a race, but you are getting quite fit and you're getting quite fit without completely destroying yourself, which I find to be, I think I used to destroy, I used to like do group rides like four days a week, but I would be so destroyed that I, would kind of just get worse over the course of a summer as opposed to getting better, which I think sweet spot helps me do. So that's, I, I was training just like not at the volume I, I really felt comfortable at. Yeah. I know that there have been a lot of doping accusations coming out of BWR Kansas. So I get it. Like you kind of feel like you have to get into defense mode here. Yeah. Um, I'm like Yumbo here after yeah. that time trial, the tour. Yeah. And I don't remember if we mentioned this, but we, we hung out the night before the race in uh, probably the finest Airbnb in Lawrence, Kansas. It's called The Submarine. It has Monopoly-themed posters, including No Pressure, No Diamonds. We might have to put that out on social media. We were there with uh, our friends Andre, Eric Matthews, and Dr. Scott Fry, who did do the long version of the race, and he got second in his age group. So Alone? It's not like he did a lot of it alone? Yeah, yeah, he, <laughs> yeah. Miserable. I cannot. Yeah, it's, it's like I think I would have gone horrible. faster in a group. It's like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think you yeah. would have gone quite a bit faster. Yeah, but Scott was, uh, Scott was, Scott was quite fast out there. But yeah, Spencer, you showed up. You were extremely fast. So thanks for you know that's what pros do. They do the better training. You did the higher quality stuff, and uh, you got the results. So I feel like I you guys d- were just like you were just like cosplaying my college lifestyle <laughs> like yeah a crappy apartment on campus like what's <laughs> going on here have i gone back in time 
It was uh it was a very affordable Airbnb. Although, yeah, this is not an Airbnb review podcast. It does always blow my mind. I think it was like 80 bucks a night, but somehow the cleaning fees were like a hundred dollars yeah, a day. It's yeah. like, what the fuck? That Come on. It, this has been noticed. People yeah. are screenshotting this. This is a phenomenon. And then the last thing on BWR is two, we have two very different bike packing philosophies. Uh, you have a Dekine case, one side hard, one side soft. You, I'm, if anyone follows you on Instagram, they just saw a beautifully packed bike. Um, is looked, that what you would call it? It was like full. I had to like fully disassemble my entire bike, which I don't ever want to do again. So if there's anybody out there, if you're uh, who makes like the really nice case where you leave the bars on, Sycon, Sycon, send me a case. Canyon, I'm waiting for that new grail. Send it over. Awesome, by the way. You just pop it in and close it up. Oh, man, that'd be amazing. I have a Pika Packworks. Uh, I have a few soft cases. One of them is is really small. Um, it's you have to take the whole bike apart. It's very hard. Do you have the, the one P- where you take the fork off and yeah. like the whole deal where you're like, oh yeah, I've got a uh, I've got a no, card no. table on my back. Yeah, no, that's right. Yeah, I'd be like yeah, it's just like it's just a little exhibit. Like, don't even worry about Some, it. But go to a science fair. It's just my exhibit. <laughs> I've done that a lot. But United <laughs> during COVID got rid of bag fees, so it was less important to hide yeah. what you're carrying on. And yeah. the Pika Packworks is pretty big, but you just take the handlebars off wheels off put it in derailleur off and then instead of wrapping it in any way i just put my clothes in new york times bags and just shove them in yeah. there as protection and it works it sometimes sometimes you get a little scratch though you want a perfect bike andrew's method is the way to go yeah all right we'll address that we'll address that on a future uh, we'll address that on a future episode Oh, and just quickly, we were going to talk about the Valmont cyclocross race. Uh, we, we might have to bump that, but it was freezing cold. People showed up. The winner did it in 48 minutes. Not very, uh, not very long race, but you would not say the turnout is what it used to be. And I think probably a lot of that is because of what we just talked about, because a lot of people are at these big gravel, gravel events that are getting a ton more publicity and yeah. frankly are probably in better climates and more fun to do. Well, I see that Alex Howes pulled up. He got eighth. And you know what? Uh, I, we're kind of going orthogonal here, but I'm thinking about down the road in the winter. Now that Cameron Mason is at, he's at a legit Belgian cyclocross team now. Like one of those, I don't know. It's like whatever gambling companies. Yeah, you know, it's he's got one of those sponsorships now. Congratulations, Cameron. Maybe that meant a big step up for him and pay during the cyclocross season. I would really love to hear from him about what it's like when you're he's on a belgian team now he's deep inside and he man he is nailing it he got a fourth place i think at koppenberg cross which that's a an extremely uh good result t-bone nice just nailing it so far this year lars vanderhaar getting a win we're like really there's just so much to talk about i know we've got a marathon app already we've made up for a missed week last week with this but just to give you a a perspective on how tough colorado cyclocross is alex out is pretty good like racing gravel professionally semi-professionally five and a half minutes back eric brother the winner of yeah. that race and that's not a big race like that is yeah that is pretty competitive but well i mean yeah and we're, we're talking about the men's elite if we wanted to see the fastest times we're going to need to go to masters 50 plus so i'll, I'll have not to pull many that people up can the hold the episode. wheel on that that might be Cameron Mason might be off the back yeah. on that, but I have been keeping up. I've been doing my homework. I've been watching cyclocross pretty much every race. 
been fun to watch Cameron Mason. So we'll do a cyclocross specific episode later this winter. Let's do it. And we're still talking about having that beyond the Peloton by choose the hard way, um, Tucson winter camp experience, Spencer and I, you know, we were not able to execute on our plan for the big live podcast at BWR. So now it's time to start thinking about 2024 and Tucson. So let us know what you think. Reach out to us on social media and let's make it happen. I'm in. I'm in. Sign me up. Thank you, Andrew. And thank you, Ever. If you've made it this far, thank you so much. You're an amazing person. Take that forward in your day. And we will talk soon. <laughs>